Hello and welcome to the Matt Belair podcast. As an explorer of the mind and world, author and coach, I have spent a lifetime learning how to push my limits and achieve my highest potential. My mission is to bring you the most inspiring, conscious, and empowering teachers, leaders, and thinkers on the planet. To bring you stories, lessons, and messages that will help you master your mind, body, and spirit. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good day, sentient, beautiful, wonderful Earth family. It is such a privilege and an honor to be with you again. I hope that wherever you are in the world that you're doing amazing, that you're happy, and that you are healthy. We have another amazing episode for you today. We have two doctors. We have Dr. Lickerman and Dr. L. Defrawi, who have co-written a book called The Ten Worlds, A New Psychology of Happiness. Uh, This is a fantastic podcast. This uh, The book is going to be amazing. They basically talk us through the ten worlds. Um, It's all about psychology, your beliefs. Um, We talk about the world of hell, hunger, the world of anger, tranquility, the world of rapture, learning, the world of realization, the world of compassion, the world of enlightenment. So this is an excellent episode we talk about the emotion of awe the growing neuroscience of happiness so this is obviously based on science because these guys are doctors um, and very smart very great gentlemen so you're going to love this episode if you like the podcast please support by sharing it by taking a screenshot and uh, tagging myself and the guests and posting on facebook and on instagram that really helps get it out Um, i'll try this briefly i was listening to uh, i got a new car And I'm pretty stoked on that. It's a 2001 Volvo with high K, but it's in good condition and I could afford it. It was like 1300 bucks, but I'm driving and it's baller and it's a wagon. I'm going to put my snowboard stuff in the back. So thank you guys. You helped and you hooked it up and I appreciate that. I've been saving my pennies so I can get driving again. Oh my God, I'm so happy to have a car and I've always liked Volvos and it's got a turbo in it too, which... You know, this is freaking awesome. So if it can get me into the mountains this winter, I'm going to be one happy camper. So thank you guys for all your support. But this was going, I turned it on and it actually turned on to like some sort of spiritual radio and some, there's some like uh, Christian, I think, um, pastor. And he's like, our show uh, goes around the world by your support and your donations. So I figured I'd give that a shot. If you guys want to support and contribute and donate uh, to the show, That'd be great, and I'll keep making it. But, you know, to be honest, I'm going to keep making it anyway, so I don't know if that's a really good sales pitch. Um, But uh, I want (laughs) to... So you can if you want. And I want to thank so much Chris Offit, or it could be French. It could be Ofu. I don't know. Uh, Maybe she could just tell me because we were chatting on Facebook. But she actually gave a a donation, and you can do that on PayPal, but you can also do it on um, Patreon if you go to Patreon. But thank you so much. It really helps a ton. Um, I'm going to be going to Guatemala. I knew I had to go to Guatemala for this indigenous ceremony and all the things that are going down there, so I took a leap of faith. And, uh, you know, I'm going down there to be uh, present for this incredible experience. So check out the Mayan Heart Festival. Um, I just did 
the podcast with a an indigenous Mayan elder on prophecy, the Mayan calendar, what's actually going on out there. So um, really just grateful for you guys. Um, shares are great. Um, Patreon's great. But the best thing you can do is one act of kindness today. And the very, very best thing you can do is three acts of kindness for a week. Take the kindness challenge. Let's make that go viral. Um, so just, you know, do it yourself. Don't tell anybody. Tag three friends. Say, hey, try the kindness challenge. Maybe you'll get a universal wink. Let's together make kindness go viral. And if uh, the podcast can encourage that, the more acts of kindness that get out there, that's how I know the podcast's working because spirituality needs action. We need to actually do something. Get somebody's name, pick up a piece of trash, um, be a good human being, and that's it. So thank you guys so much for listening. If you are uh, go to mattbelair.com, sign up for the email list. You can get a free lucid dreaming. If you go free lucid dreaming, you get an ebook and a guided meditation. If you want some coaching, I'm doing more hypnosis sessions, uh, coaching sessions like breakthrough sessions in 90 minutes, uh, hypnosis, heart journey, um, and one-on-one. So uh, hit me up if you're interested in that, and uh, I'll definitely help you level up, get clarity, um, break through any limiting blocks or, or things that you're going through, and help give you a clear path and lots of resources and homework to get you going. So if you're interested in that, go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching, and that's about it. So thank you so much for listening. Let's just come into a powerful state of peace and clearance by just taking one deep breath in. So taking a deep breath. Hold that in. Just setting the intention to come to total peace and total presence and total coherence. Let that breath out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day. Just setting the intention to be kind and compassionate to yourself and kind and compassionate to others. I know we normally do three, but you can still do it with one because you are that kind of master. So thank you so much for listening. Have an incredible day. And let's get into this incredible episode with Drs. Lickerman and L. Defrawi. Hello and welcome to the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. According to today's guest, author of the new book, The Ten Worlds, The New Psychology of Happiness, we all have nine basic beliefs about how to achieve lasting happiness, and all of them are wrong. Dr. Lickerman, a primary care physician, and Dr. L. Defrawi, a clinical psychologist who later transitioned to a career in marketing, argue that these nine erroneous beliefs or core delusions are so deeply embedded into our thinking that we cannot escape them. In fact, they lead to nine basic life conditions or worlds which we all continuously cycle. And because these worlds are created by delusions, the happiness they produce is fragile and temporary. The 10 worlds steers readers towards the 10th world, a psychological state created by a belief in a core truth that leads to absolute happiness. Founded in neither mysticism nor the supernatural, the Ten Worlds skillfully combines two decades of research based on real-life patient experiences and the latest science with an established philosophy to guide readers to a better understanding of why happiness is so fleeting and how to achieve an enduring happiness. Welcome to the show, Drs. Lickerman and El Defwawi. Thanks for having us. And I, I think we don't need to be here. You just summarized the entire book perfectly. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I, I hope I pronounced both your names right. Did I get, was it, was it good? It was very good. Yep. Okay. Okay, cool. So I, I want to make sure I got that out, but man, reading that bio got me super excited because I exactly want that. I would, I would, I want that information. So do you guys want to give a little bit of background on uh, how you got to where you are today? You're both doctors. And then what was the reason for writing the book and what's in there? Sure. So, um, how I got to where I am today is uh, back in medical school, I was actually introduced uh, to a form of Buddhism called Nichiren Buddhism by a classmate. 
And uh, I had always been really intrigued by the notion that enlightenment was a real thing that wasn't just some uh, you know, fantasy that uh, Buddhist monks and uh, halfway around the world to come up with, but it was something that actually people could attain somehow in, in this lifetime. And I dabbled with Zen Buddhism in high school and really found it quite inaccessible, but it was always intrigued by the notion. And then when my classmates said, she's actually practicing a form of Buddhism that promises to help people uh, establish a life state of enlightenment in this lifetime, I was too intrigued not to try it. And so um, I did and found some really remarkable effects from it, but uh, Fundamentally, being a scientist, I was very skeptical about the mystical aspects. And, and then Ash and I, who've been friends uh, for more than 20 years, we, we met in college, uh, was uh, by then a clinical psychologist and was very interested in sort of the psychology and the philosophy behind the 10 worlds and the notion of enlightenment. And so we, he actually was the one who suggested more than 20 years ago that we write a book about this from a, from a psychological perspective. And then over the last 20 years, we've been talking and, and researching and finally uh, decided it was time to write it. And so that's, that's how I got to where I am. Yeah, my path, uh, slightly different. So I also, uh, we met in college. I was uh, transitioning from uh, uh, undergrad medicine, decided to go into clinical psychology. Uh, and as I was uh, doing my graduate work and postgraduate work, I just became really um, maybe frustrated of why people were so bad at being happy. Um, and, you know, obviously watching my, my clients kind of struggle making the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, and just, just, it just seemed like they were trying to grasp something that was just really hard for them to, to get their head around. And so as I was thinking about it from a psychological perspective and a perspective of how to, how to help my clients and my patients, Alex and I kind of came together sort of like, you know, peanut butter and chocolate, kind of the whole, you know, uh, peanut butter and chocolate. And, and, it, and we, we set out on this path. So I wasn't so much on a personal journey like Alex, I was more on a psychological journey of how to help my clients. And so I think that's why this came together so well and maybe why it took so long to write as well. That sounds awesome. Well, you guys definitely have, you know, a lot of research, you, you know, and a lot of real life experience um, to put this together. And I think that happiness is, is a huge subject. You know, a lot, a lot of people are going around the world and they're just not happy. Um, and so I'm curious to, to hear what you guys came up with. If you wanted to go into a little bit of the book and describe, you know, what are what you know these are delusions so what are what delusions are we we living yeah. in you know ash points out he found some research showing it's very interesting there's been an explosion of research in the world of happiness in the realm of happiness in the last 10 or 20 years and yet studies are showing that people are more unhappy than ever before and so there's some some um disconnect there between the research that is showing what people need to be happy and yet at the same time either it's not complete or it's not being applied in the correct way because people are so unhappy more so than they have been uh, in, in maybe 10 or 20 years. And Ash could quote some of that, that research. But um, you know, now that you could argue that's because, well, the world is really a, an unpleasant place right now for a lot of people. Um, but we'll, we argue in the book that the reason is partly because while a lot of the research and happiness has pointed at sort of more superficial things that we need to do to be happy, and, and we're certainly not arguing that that research is wrong, but we think that there's a, a deeper current and a deeper understanding that can be had about the, the, the true causes of happiness. And as you said in the introduction, we are proposing that that comes, that, that happiness really is determined by our beliefs and not just any beliefs, but beliefs we have about happiness itself. And that's why we think a lot of people continue to go wrong in their pursuit of happiness because they believe that what they need to be happy, in fact, what happiness is itself, uh, those beliefs are incorrect. And so they're, they're not able to become happy the way they want to. Yeah. 
a lot of the, I mean, if you look at a lot of the research on happiness, and we can get into what some of those beliefs are, but uh, the, it's about, you know, what you need to get to be happy or uh, what you need to achieve. Um, it's focused on what you want, what you want to get, even how you want to feel about what you want to get, about your mindset, about moods, attitudes. So there's a lot of research, but we think it's, you know, like I said, it's not necessarily wrong. It's just a little incomplete and stops a little short of what we believe uh, is required to have lasting happiness. And I think, you know, the, the distinction between a lot of the things you read that allow you to achieve kind of temporary happiness or daily happiness, uh, again, we don't think that's the what you should ultimately be striving for. So our book really starts laying the foundation for how you can achieve a happiness that endures and is more lasting. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great to me, and and I think that you guys are right it, in the fact that um, people are more unhappy than ever. It's like we have all of these uh, luxuries and these possibilities, and um, let's say opportunity to be happy. But I think that um, we can focus on the things that we don't have, you know, or or whatever is going on psychologically. And this has been like my research and the point of the podcast is like, you know, I'm just trying to improve myself and my my mindset. And I had Tom Campbell on who's one of the physicists on uh, simulation theory. And I really liked when he talked about the quality of your consciousness, you know, and he would just use that term that how do we improve the quality of consciousness and um, somebody who's going around happy, you know, it's not about the external, it's about more the internal and the quality of their consciousness. So I'd love to hear like some of these beliefs and some of the research. Well, so we, uh, you know, it's not too surprising to imagine that everybody has beliefs about what they think will make them happy, whether that may be money, or it may be uh, experiences or friends or inner peace, whatever it is, it's something that they have to have that they believe will make them happy. And if you take all the beliefs in the entire world that everybody has about what they need to be happy. And you drill each, each one of those, you drill them down to the sort of the essential nature of that belief. We argue in the book that that, that drills down into these actually 10 beliefs, nine of which we call core delusions because nine of which do not get you the happiness that you want, which is happiness that endures. And so, so for example, you know, um, one of the, the, um, uh, the, the core delusions is that happiness is pleasure. And you can look at, you know, many, many people uh, who actually really believe that, that what happiness is, is pleasure. And, and the problem with that is that pleasure may, you know, contributes to happiness, but it's not happiness. And, and a devotion to pleasure, to one's own pleasure, actually often ends up creating a life that's very unhappy. And so that, you know, that's an example of how if you, for example, believe that pleasure is happiness and you think that the way to be happy is to drink a lot of alcohol or to use drugs, the type of life you end up getting and the type of happiness you end up having is really... Uh, pretty limited. Uh, and, it's, and if you think about it, it's actually caused fundamentally by that belief. So that's an example of one of them. Uh, and so that's, by the way, it's what we call that the happiness equals pleasure is what we have, what we call the world of animality in, 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 in the book. Uh, and another example uh, is, it happens to be the world I come from, uh, which is uh, the happiness comes from avoiding pain. Um, and that and avoiding pain comes in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, one way is to avoid putting yourself in situations which you think will cause you significant emotional pain or making certain decisions that you think the outcomes might lead you to suffering emotional pain. Um, so you kind of avoid those things. Or you place way too much of your happiness or your belief about happiness into making the right decision versus the wrong decision, which can be somewhat kind of paralyzing. Um, but the reality is your happiness is not in, contained in the decision you make or the decisions that you avoid making. 
But, but as you can imagine, people, a lot of people believe that, right? If I make the right, right, right decision about my spouse or my job or moving or financial investment or you know, people place a lot of their happiness into those decisions where the reality is that that outcome does not in itself contain that. Um, so that's a very common belief. In fact, a lot of people, when, they, when uh, we talk to them, hold that belief, which is why they, they struggle with um, the, you know, holding so much onto the outcome. And, and it, it makes just that happiness very you know, ephemeral and fleeting. Uh, and, and actually, it turns out we have research in the book that we're actually really bad at predicting um, which decisions actually lead us to happiness or not. In fact, we're wrong most of the time. So, so that, that's another common world and common belief that we, that we talk about. That's awesome. And I think it's so important that you guys, uh, you start with identifying the 10. So I'd love for you guys to continue, but that's, it's really good to know, right? When you can kind of see, you can, you can lock in and say, oh, you know what? I actually do believe that. And then, um, so if you cover, if you continue to cover them, I'd love to hear that. And then when we can talk about like the 10th world or dive in to one of the elements as deep as we'd like. Well, before we do that, it might be useful uh, just to sort of explain what we mean by a world and sort of how these core delusions relate to the world, because we're talking as if everybody understands that. And it's, it's the notion of how our happiness is determined by what we believe, specifically what we believe about happiness itself, isn't just based on, as Asha said, how we behave in response to that belief, but what we what our research suggests and what our experience suggests is that each of these core beliefs generates an entire internal milieu, you know, an entire set of thoughts and feelings and behaviors that creates what we call these worlds. The other term for that is life condition, sort of the, the, the state of your inner life. And this is what you were saying, Matt, at the beginning, which is that it's more about what's, what's internal that determines how happy you are. We think about the worlds as sort of the lens through which we experience all of life, and it colors everything. So an example would be, if you are in the world of hell, the lowest of the 10 worlds, where basically you are, you are suffering, uh, no matter what happens in your life, you're going to view everything and think about everything and feel everything through the lens of that world. So even if you were to win the Nobel Prize while in the state of hell, that would not be a cause for joy. You would find some way to suffer over that. And it is really because uh, that world has been manifested in your life and, and that is controlling your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors based on a core belief, a delusion, that has been stirred up by something, then from that moment forward, as long as you're in that world, that's how you will experience the world outside. And, is, and that is the case on for all of the worlds that we talk about. So what we're arguing is it's not just the belief you have, the core delusion and how it causes you to behave, but it's how it creates an entire inner life state for you that then determines your entire experience. Yeah, a very, so this is actually, this, I think this idea of it's not so much what's happening to you, but what it stirs up, it's a really important concept and it's one of the central, Kind of uh, aspects of the book because I always, you know, when I was a, a therapist, I was always um, intrigued by the fact that the same exact thing could happen to different people and their lives can, you know, one, of, in, one in one instance it could destroy somebody's life, and in another instance it actually they could use it in a way to motivate them, inspire them, and actually do great things. So why is it that the exact same event can have such profoundly different impacts? on this you know on somebody's life and again i think alex because it's not so much the event um as it is the, what it actually ignites in you or what beliefs that it awakens in you that then start determining the way you experience it so that's that's what i think what alex means by you know it, so it's really about your life condition more so than the things that happen to you 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. It, you know, it's, it's like that internal, um, system, like the core beliefs, like one of them that I talked about before was that you either believe that the universe is on your side and you can say that everything that happens for me is for my highest good. Like some of it might not be at like a pleasurable experience. We could perceive it as bad. You lose a job, right? So yeah. two people could lose a job and one says, okay, you know, this is the best thing that could have happened to me. I'm going to find an even better job or whatever the heck they're going to have now opportunity to create. It's, it's, and it's also um, not, not what happens to us that creates our future. It's how we respond to what happens to us. And I'm sure you guys touch on this idea and many others. Um, so yeah, it totally, it's the lens in which you're viewing it because one isn't an empowering idea and one of them is kind of disempowering. One of them is a victim and one of them is a, a creator. And those are uh, pretty fundamental shifts. Well, and in fact, based on, you know, just what you're saying, so something like that happens and depending on how you, how you interpret it, how you, what you believe about it, we're going one step further and saying, you know, that belief itself is what creates the world within you. It creates that life condition. And then once you're in that life condition, that's what determines how happy or unhappy you're going to be, what the limit on your happiness is. And so, you know, the, the, the core delusions are what manifest that world, but then the world itself uh, is is what uh, what determines how happy you can be in, in almost like an, in a self-determining way. So, you know, if you were in the state of hell, for example, when, you know, you lost your job, uh, you, you know, whatever you believe, you know, you may believe that this is an opportunity for you, but if the world of hell has been stirred up in you enough, it will be very hard for you to respond in a way that reflects the belief you described. It more will reflect the belief that's at the core, core of the center of the world of hell. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we, so how do we operate in, in these worlds to get to the world that we, we want to get to? So I'll, <laughs> that's, I'll let you guys talk on that. Yeah. So, you know, we wrote the book really, first and foremost, to sort of describe these worlds and people and point out to people that this is what's sort of operating in their psychology. And so when people don't understand why am I feeling a certain way, why aren't I happier than I am, we're trying to point out, you know, it's because one of these nine core delusions is, is predominant in your life and is being stirred up a lot. And so to help you begin to understand, yeah, I really do believe, for example, that pleasure is happiness. Like that's what my life revolves around, for example, in the world of animality, you know, and, and this, is, uh, this isn't just, by the way, alcoholics and drug addicts. It's people maybe who are addicted to physical pleasure, like people who cannot control their desire to eat or, or, uh, or are just interested in sort of, you know, the physical pleasures in general uh, and don't realize that their belief the, the way their lives have been constructed and the way they experience life is because that is their end game is to experience pleasure. But just to, the, the first step I think is pointing out and understanding, yeah, that core delusion really is mine. Or I see that, that the core delusion manifests in me a lot is the first step towards saying, you know, well, maybe this isn't right. Maybe there's a, a, another way to be and I can start looking at some of the other higher worlds and sort of other ways to think about happiness that I can sort of not free myself from these core delusions. They're so ingrained in us, it's difficult not to believe them or prevent them from being stirred up. But you can change in such a way that other beliefs are stirred up then you know, naturally produce other life conditions, higher worlds that actually lead to greater happiness. Yeah, I mean, so part of the other, the other reason, Matt, that, this is, that these worlds are so alluring and these beliefs are so alluring is for a couple of things. First of all, they actually do lead to sort of a temporary happiness that can be very... Uh, that we want to pursue. So for example, the world of hunger, which is um, a very common world, I think we all enter in it, and that's about happiness coming from getting the things we want. Uh, it's a world that you know, we all enter all the time um, when we're, when we're you know, in the grip of something that we're pursuing or we're really focused on achieving some goal. Um, 
you know, we all, and we all believe that if I can just get this thing, I can be happy. If I can just get this job, I can just make this money. If I can just get this girl or the guy, um, if I can just, you know, get an A on this test, whatever it may be, big or small, we do place a lot of happiness in that. And when you achieve it, you do experience that burst of happiness. But for a lot of people, that's very fleeting. And, uh, you know, Alex always uses the example, it's like a stick of gum. It, it tastes really sweet, but it fades. And then you're on to the very next thing that you need to kind of can maintain that. So there is a very real aspect of that. And, I, and, and in addition, it's not all bad. I mean, even though there's just our core delusions, you know, being in the world of hunger, pursuing goals, great things have been achieved with that, right? People, and it's important that for us to kind of to be fixated and obsessed on things to accomplish great things. But it's the loss of those very things, which could be the reason that you actually get plunged into hell, right? Because you could get the person and then you get a divorce or you get the job and you get fired or you make the money, then you lose it. And suddenly the things that you had placed your happiness into are the same, very same things that become your, you know, your demise or in, you're plunging into the world of hell. So, so it's just important to note that, you know, even though these are delusions, there's a very rational explanation of why people cling to them. And in fact, why it's so hard to let go of them. But, but when you can make, at least bring them into your awareness, like for example, right now, me writing this book, I discovered I come from the world of tranquility, which I did not think is where I came from when I started <laughs> this book, by the way. Um, but it's helped me significantly because I start understanding that like, A, that my happiness is not necessarily attached to these decisions. And this freed me to, uh, to not feel this burden and this anxiety around every decision that I face in my life that feels like a big one. Because I've kind, of, I've kind of, it's now come into my consciousness and it's really been freeing for me. So I think other people who recognize what their, you know, their core belief is, it can really be freeing to start understanding, which we hope this book accomplishes and helps people realize. Yeah, that all sounds amazing. And I think that each of these worlds from the little bit that I'm getting could be, you know, we could do a, probably a podcast on each of them. And the big value is recognizing which world you're coming from. Because a lot of the time we're operating under these unconscious, subconscious beliefs that are running our entire life. And it takes that first bit of conscious awareness to be able to make a choice usually. And so that's kind of what you're offering. And what comes to mind for me is just like, you know, some of those old Zen lessons where there's the story of the Zen farmer and, uh, you know, he gets the, his horse runs away and the neighbor comes over. He's like, Oh, that's so bad. And he's like, maybe and the horse comes back with 10 horses. He's like, Oh, this is good. And he's like, maybe, you know, and it kind of keeps going like that where there's an external uh, stimulus. There's something in the environment, but he kind of remains uh, tranquil, but you know, the world of tranquility one that, that has me curious. <laughs> well, it's ironic because that exact story is one we tell in the book. And we tell that in, uh, in, the, in the chapter about rapture, which is basically joy that comes from attaining and having attachment. And it's just like you said, we quickly interpret the, the gains we get as good until circumstances change and suddenly they get flipped and they become bad. And so that's the danger of, of depending on attachment for happiness, which is really what all the nine worlds that are based on these core delusions are about. That it is, it is having, being attached to something. Uh, does, as Ash said, bring great joy, but it's not joy that lasts, and it's also joy that's at risk, because if you have that thing, you can lose it. And in fact, the true you know, point of view is we will lose everything, right, including our own lives. And so at some point, everything that gives us joy, that is externally derived joy, the world of rapture ultimately can and often does become our, our, a source of suffering for us. And so you know, the 10th chapter, you know, is, is more about a, an entirely different perspective, an entirely different type of happiness that we believe is possible, that sort of frees you from the need to depend on attachment.
That all sounds amazing as well. So, you know, we've got about 40 minutes and I know that like the research that you guys have done is probably extraordinary. I'm excited to read this book. What do you guys feel would be the best to, if somebody is listening and they're going to, you know, improve and like kind of get your research in this hour, do you think we should go through each one and then focus more on the 10th world or how do you think we should go about this? Let's do that. Yeah. We could sort of give a brief, we could, we could, Ash and I could sort of switch off. We'd give a brief synopsis of each world and then we can focus on the 10th world, the, the world of enlightenment. So I'll start with hell. So hell is sort of the modern day equivalent of, of depression, uh, although it encompasses more than that because you can suffer and not strictly speaking fulfill criteria for, for major depressive disorder. And uh, it is, you know, people in this state can be, whether you're there for a moment or whether you're there, you know, chronically and cannot seem to escape the, the feeling of suffering, that is really what that world fundamentally is about. And that, I don't think there's a, a single world that has a better illustration of how the world that you are trapped in determines how you see everything. And I'm sure you, many of your, you know, your readership, your audience at least, uh, can relate to people who they know who are just, when, they're, when they themselves are down and they know people who are down, it colors everything. Right? doesn't matter how good your life could be going on the outside. If you're internally in the state of hell, if you are suffering for whatever reason, um, that, that's how you're going to view everything. So that's hell. Okay, and then next you make your way into the world of hunger, which is what I was just talking about. And, I, in, and though I'm not sure how many people come from that world, uh, we, we definitely enter it. All of us are familiar with entering it. That's the world when you're really trying, you know, it's about getting what you want because you think that's going to make you happy. Um, and that could be anything from a big goal, a big achievement, you know, finding the, finding the right spouse or getting the right job all to wait, like I said, to getting the right grade or, you know, avoiding, you know, getting the green light um, on your way to work. So, uh, but it's, it's, it's really about, uh, you know, believing or thinking that a lot of your happiness is contained in, in, in getting what you want. And it could lead to a real roller coaster ride. Um, in terms of you, you, you get something, then the ne- you're on to the next thing, on to the next thing, and you sort of, um, it's, you know, we talk about it as sort of an ache, you know, to always wanting that next thing. And never being satisfied with what you have is part of that world that you feel that there's, that happiness is just always around the corner. If I could just get this next thing and that next thing, but when you get it, uh, as I said, the, 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 the taste of that gum stick is sweet initially, but it quickly fades you're on to the next thing. And so these are people who are sort of in a, a perpetual state of wanting, and, and which, which really, if you think about it, is described as an ache. Uh, animality is next, uh, and that is where, uh, again, we talked about the core delusion, uh, which is that uh, happiness and pleasure are one and the same. And people who live in the world of animality uh, tend to be governed by their, their instincts and their impulses and sort of in, into wanting to satisfy uh, their carnal desires, and by carnal, I don't just mean sexual, but all physical pleasure. It could be sleep, it could be eating, um, you know, the feelings you get from using substances that alter your consciousness and, and produce uh, high and, 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 you know, and, and, and that type of thing. These people tend to be uh, very impulsive, easily manipulatable, uh, somewhat self-centered, very focused on their own pleasure, uh, often in the grip of that pleasure, uh, and as they, they aim for whatever that pleasure is, they do it at tremendous personal cost. You know, these are people who will never, uh, who live by sort of the, the adage of um, uh, they will always sacrifice uh, long-term gain, uh, long-term pain for short-term gain. Meaning that they want short-term gain at the cost of long-term pain is what I should say. Yeah, and then as we enter the world of anger, which is the next world, uh, this is the world of ego, and you know, characterized by a lot of the manifestations of, of insecurities. 
uh, and whether that comes through the need to feel better than others and superior and competitiveness, uh, the need to control, which sometimes comes in the form of, uh, of anger, but it's really about anger toward, uh, turned inward uh, more so than it's necessarily anger toward outward, even though it can be manifested in that way as well. Um, but this is that, that burden of always feeling like you need to be better than other people, um, whether that's subtle, whether that's overt, uh, whether that comes across in kind of natural competitiveness on a, on a sports field or uh, on, you know, inappropriate control over a spouse. Um, um, but again, um, and I think it's important to note that, you know, each of these worlds has, you know, some kind of positive functioning for them. And so this world is also, you know, insecurity has been a great driver of people accomplishing great things. Um, to push themselves to be better or to feel superior, to be competitive. A lot of athletes are driven by that, for example, right? Um, it's that fear of, you know, that, that drives them to work out every day and practice all the time because they feel the need to be better. So it can lead to greatness, but it is the world where you're subject to your own, to your own ego. And I should note, and maybe Alex, we should note this, that one, one thing we talk about in this book is, because uh, I think we've referenced it a couple times, of coming from a certain world versus entering certain worlds. So we believe we all enter these worlds, but we, all, we also argue in the book that we all have a core, what we call a core life tendency or a place which we feel probably basic the life most tendency. time. Right? Basic life tendency. Yeah, but I'm sorry. Sorry, basic life tendency, uh, which is really where we feel we, where people spend the most time and feel like um, it's, it's their natural kind of home state, is a better way of saying it. Yeah, it's an important point to make, which is that even if you, whatever world you, you identify as yours, that doesn't mean you don't get to experience all the other worlds. In fact, part of our hypothesis here is that we all cycle through these worlds all the time based on which core delusions are being triggered in us uh, at what time. Um, so the next world is actually the world of tranquility, uh, which is Ash's world. And, and uh, you know, he talked about what the core delusion is that fuels that, which is the belief that happiness is the avoidance of pain. And you can imagine if, you're, if your entire orientation in life was to avoid pain, how hesitant that would make you in, make, you know, in, in making decisions. So people in the world of tranquility tend to have a hard time making decisions. They tend to really cling to the status quo, whatever that is, just because it's familiar and therefore feels safe and, and non-painful. Even if they are in pain, it's a pain that they're, they're used to and so are afraid of greater pain. And, and counterintuitively, people in the world of tranquility often tend to be avoidant of positive feelings as well. Uh, you know, they're, they're just, they approach every experience with a little bit of anxiety, a little hesitation, uh, and they don't really want to risk anything too much, even if they might get get something, you know, a, a positive feeling out of that. Yeah, yeah, that's not. It's you know, there's there's really there's positive things to being in this world because it does make you tend to be uh, not take unnecessary risks and so on. But I could, but you know, even the I can tell you from experience, even even the positive things, you're just waiting for the other foot to drop sometimes, and so. Uh, it, it can be it, you know, like it's a real it's a real belief that you have to kind of battle all the time. Hey, Alex, I'm going to let you take Rapture. I think this is okay, uh, and then I can go to onto learning. All right, Rapture uh, is uh, it's a pivotal world, and it's a world in which uh, in the book we pivot a little bit because that's where we sort of recognize that the type of happiness we've been talking about this entire time is something called relative happiness. And by relative happiness, what we mean is happiness that is dependent on external things, external. Uh, you know, um, things outside ourselves or, th or things we must possess in some way or have happened to us in some way in order for us to feel joy. And really, if you think about it, this is what most people think happiness is, that, you know, how can you be happy without something to be happy about, for example, whether that is pleasure that you got 
or whether that is a desire that you had fulfilled or that was avoiding a painful situation, you know, you were given something or avoided something, which is another way of saying you were given something and therefore feel joy as a result. And so people in the world of rapture who generally come from the world of rapture, um, they are very good at enjoying what they have. It's not that they have more than the rest of us or they have better things than the rest of us. In fact, there's some evidence to suggest if you are continually looking for the next thing, where are you really? You're in the world of hunger. In fact, you're not very happy at all. But in contrast, people in the world of rapture are sort of experts at appreciating what they have and paying attention to what they have because other studies have shown that we get used to what we have. And so that's why that stick of gum, the flavor fades, because the longer you have it, it just becomes the thing you have. You know, So your car that you were so excited to get just becomes your car. You barely think about it. And even your spouse, who you were so excited to marry and, and, and be with, most days is just your spouse, or maybe somebody even you're not so excited to be with. Uh, but a large part of that is because you're not pausing to appreciate the fact that you have it and to actually let yourself feel joy from the feeling of having it. And people in rapture are just really good at that. So they actually tend to be uh, people who are filled with gratitude, who throw themselves into experience and fully enjoy the experience, whatever it may be. Even experiences that they're not fully, uh, you know, are not fully pleasant, they feel them. They're not afraid to feel them. They sort of, these are people who really live in a very vibrant and full way. And, you know, people you know who are just joyful all the time, even when bad things happen, they tend to look on the bright side. They tend to find a quickly way, they find, tend to find a way quickly to appreciate what they have. And now you start entering what we call the higher worlds, uh, and the first of which is called the world of learning. And this is really a world about the belief that are, you know, coming at the world that that happiness is really derived from creating meaningful things or creating meaning or creating value in some way. Uh, and that could be any, that could be some creating a great piece of art to, a, or to building a company, uh, to writing a book. Uh, but it, it's about, it's about creating, uh, approaching the world and the belief that, you know, happiness is derived from adding something to the world that outlasts you. Uh, and so you, as you can imagine, you know, this is, there's a lot of um, uh, curiosity in this world, uh, a desire to learn, um, and to and driven to you know to, to to create great things. And so that's that's the world of learning, which is the first of the higher worlds. And and this is my basic life tendency. And and like Ash, um, I was a little surprised, uh, and frankly even a little bit dismayed to discover this was my home world. But as we've had this experience of writing this book, and other people who've read it ha have come to us and said, yeah, I, you know. The world, one of those worlds, it was like reading a textbook of my life. For me, this world really resonates. And when I think about this, I really believe and can't actually escape the belief that my happiness is contingent upon my uh, creating great works, building things, contributing value in some way, building something like a book and a company. And, and, and in fact, when I really reflect on it, this really determines how I live my life every single day, even as I have become fully conscious of this belief and recognize that uh, it does bring me a lot of, I mean, building things, creating meaningful things does bring real happiness, but it's still relative happiness because, you know, the thing that you create can fall short or the thing you can create can be destroyed or not have the impact you want it to have. And in order for you to continue to derive joy from it, you have to keep focusing on it. You have to keep thinking about it. Why do great artists or even any artist whatsoever, you know, when we, we create something, you, you know, you're in the act of creation is this blissful, joyful thing. You send it out into the world and, and it maybe is received well and other quarters not, but you've created this value for some people and then you move on, right? Why? Because 
that, that stick of gum, that flavor still fades. Uh, the next world is, is very much linked to the world of learning. It's called the world of realization, where if in realization, sorry, if in learning, uh, you, the, the, the goal here is to create something of meaning, uh, you know, something uh, that outlasts you, that creates, contributes, uh, you know, uh, value to the world. In the world of learning, the type of meaning that you're attached to is self-development. So this is people who are struggling always and always thinking about how they can improve and are delighting in discovering truths about themselves, overcoming their weaknesses. These are people who are very self-aware, who are constantly challenging themselves, whether mentally, emotionally, physically, always trying to better themselves in some way. Yeah. And again, obviously lots of great manifestations of that world, but if you're too fixated on that, you start neglecting all other aspects of your life or, you know, and you've seen that, um, and so again, um, while one of the higher worlds, it still can be fleeting and you can always you know, be suffering through because of it, because you're never really, you know, becoming the person you want to become if you really place too much of it. <laughs> 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 really Found your world. Is that's that your world. world. That's your world. Okay. Um, yeah. um, and so next we make our way into the world of compassion, uh, which is really, the, you know, the world about, you know, about believing that, you know, happiness really comes from, um, helping other people become happier. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is, you know, obviously, um, it's hard to see this in any, anything but a positive way. People who commit themselves uh, to, and put, maybe even sometimes putting other people's happiness before their own, um, and are really kind of committed to uh, you know, helping ease people's pain uh, or being there for them. Um, and the, and, their, and their, their joy is really attached to that. And if they're not, in the, if they're not, uh, you know, helping others become happy, they themselves struggle to find their own happiness. Um, that can obviously sometimes lead, it can be burdensome. And we talk about this and that you can be so great to other people that you neglect yourself, which over time can sometimes build resentment. Particularly a lot of times you commit yourself to other people's uh, happiness and there's not, you know, you don't see the appreciation and the reciprocation. Um, but you, what you have to be careful here in this world is that, you know, find that balance between, you know, taking care of yourself and also being committed to other people, uh, you know, other people becoming happy. Yeah, people in the world of compassion tend to be what we think of as caretakers, and it can be incredibly satisfying and joy producing, but also can be overwhelming. And ultimately, people can build up resentment if they don't feel they've created space for themselves. That's sort of the downside of that world. So before I talk about the 10th world enlightenment, I just want to point out, you know, we've described sort of what people in these worlds are like. And we've, in some cases, talked about some of the core delusions that create them. I don't know that we've made clear, though, some of these may seem somewhat arbitrary, sort of an arbitrary, you know, uh, description of how people can be. But if you read the book and sort of see how we have traced down what we believe to be the core delusions of each of these, they really are foundational. <coughs> Excuse me. Meaning that we think that these are the basic core delusions that simply by virtue of being born a human being and having, uh, you know, a human experience as a child and growing into an adult, whatever culture you're in, they're universal. They're, they're very much a part of our basic development. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so the 10th world, in contrast to the lower worlds or the, or the nine worlds based on core delusions, is a world that produces what we call absolute happiness. And by absolute happiness, we mean a very specific thing. We mean happiness that is not dependent on any attachment whatsoever. So that it is possible to be in this 10th world <coughs> and be in the worst possible external circumstances you can imagine, to be in Auschwitz, to be in prison, to, to, to have lost family members, to be terminally ill, and still actually be joyful. 
And the reason for this is because the, the, the cause of this type of happiness is not attachment to anything. Conditions externally don't have to be good or even or right for you to be absolutely happy. But absolute happiness is not about having certain things. It's about perceiving the world in a very particular way. And, and where I think the, the original contribution I think we've made to this, this literature, this dialogue, is that we are describing the world of enlightenment, the notion of enlightenment, not as a mystical phenomenon, but as actually not even a psychological phenomenon, but a neurological phenomenon that is available to all people. And that can be probably achieved in more than one way. But there's been actually an explosion of neuroscience that points to what needs to happen and what the brain is like for a person in this state. And we have put forth a hypothesis about how anyone can gradually develop that state themselves by focusing on perceiving the world in a very particular way. You want me to say what that way is? You're waiting for me to yeah, tell you. No, we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th no, this is brilliant. This is a brilliant body of work. I'm very grateful well, for this. You. Yeah, so please continue. So uh, this gives it away a little bit, but, but what fundamentally we're, we're going to, our hypothesis is, is that um, the emotion that generates the world of enlightenment, that is in fact the world of enlightenment itself, is awe. Awe is actually uh, an emotion that isn't often talked about or uh, certainly not often studied, uh, but is something that people from the beginning of uh, human civilization, where people were writing things down, have described. And I should point out one of the, the pieces of evidence we cite for why enlightenment is a neurologic process in the brain is because in every society throughout all of human history, people have described this state and they describe it in almost exactly the same way. And it's, and it's you know, all the characteristics which we could talk about, but fundamentally what it is about is, is creating in yourself this feeling of awe. And how does one create a feeling of awe? And, and by this, I don't mean, you know, it's not a religious it's not necessarily a religious thing, although in that context, awe seems to be very quickly for many people accessible. But you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to be religious to feel awe uh, in the world. And it really comes from being able, learning to perceive the world as sublime. And, and sublime is, is also another topic that has not been frequently thought about or well studied, but is something most of us at some point in our lives have experience with. And that is simply the notion that Everything around us, the universe itself, creation itself, the world around us, from, from you know, the desk I'm sitting in front of, uh, to the person I'm talking to on the screen, to the farthest reaches of the stars and the cosmos, is elegantly constructed, perfectly constructed, beautifully constructed, and good. Good in the sense that it is of supreme value. And Kant, you know, the philosopher Kant, was one of the, he talked about awe, or, or the sublime, and what he said was, one of the things he recognized was that the sublime is really more a function of our own minds, our own thinking, that as much as it is the universe itself. And yet how to enter in that state where everything appears to be sublime uh, is not so easy. But if I were to take a, a step now to the neurology for a second, what the studies show is that when people feel awe, what actually ends up happening is their sense of self is dramatically diminished. You know, on the surface, that seems like a bad thing, like you feel like this small person, but it really isn't. In fact, it's paradoxically an amazing thing because it, it tends to occur commonly, for example, in nature, when you're faced with sort of the, the enormity of nature that you're looking at and how that makes you feel small. Universally, when people report feeling small in that way, they don't feel small like they're, you know, a small-minded ego, but they feel just their sense of self dissipate in some way. Um, 
paradoxically brings one of the greatest joys that's possible. And if you've had this experience, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And most people, or many, many more people than that people realize have had this experience. We write about it in the book. Ash and I both describe our own experiences with this. And what's really fascinating now is that we're beginning to understand the neurology of this. There is, in fact, a part of the brain that's called the default mode network, which seems to house our, our literally our sense of self. And we know this because different states uh, and different things can shut this down. And we can actually see on, a, on what's called a functional MRI, we can see this part of the brain, the activity dramatically decreasing. When that happens, people report these types of states, these type of awakening experiences. So one of the most dramatic things that does this are psychedelics. So psilocybin now has been, there's been a, a resurgence in interest in, in, in uh, experimenting, uh, doing research on the, on the psychedelics, LSD, some, but psilocybin even more so. And what that seems to do, among other things, is it shuts down the default mode network and gives people this dramatic experience, this dissolution of self, and it, it produces all of the experiences that people describe throughout history as being a part of enlightenment and awakening experience, and including the most incredible, overwhelming joy uh, that people have ever experienced. I'm going to stop there because that was a lot. I, I want to no, that's, inc- I, that's my favorite thing. I was just wondering if, uh, Ash, do you want to add on to any of that? Uh, no, I mean, uh, I'm not sure I could do say anything that won't just diminish that. So uh, I haven't had a chance to even hear Alex talk about that much. And so it was actually uh, beautifully said. And um, I mean, so, and I can, I can just tell you because I've had glimpses of this experience and it's knowing you can have it um, and experiencing it does, does create, it does create a shift because it's sort of the awakening is not just the experience of having it, which was very fleeting by the way. And it was, you know, it was hard just to kind of recapture it, but just knowing that it exists creates a very, you know, it's, I I guess I, I feel very lucky because it creates in me the desire to try to figure out and work really hard to try to recreate it, not just recreate it, but like, how do you, how do you stay in a sustained state? I think we do talk in the book and Alex can even talk more about why it's very challenging uh, to sustain it, even when you get a glimpse of it. The other thing I think is important and maybe Alex can illuminate it is that this is not about, um, you know, a Zen experience or attachments are bad. Uh, in fact, we talk in the book that, uh, you know, it's, you can still have bad experiences. You can still, you know, even suffer because of them, but that's, but that suffering and those experiences and lo- losing those attachments is, is it, you know, creates a very fundamental different sort of experience for you, right? It doesn't plunge you into different worlds um, because you, those, those, those are transformed to a different experience. But I just, I think it's important to note that it's not about not having those things or seeing attachments as something that are not necessary in life. Uh, uh, that's not what it's about at all. It's about a way of perceiving the world in a specific way. Yeah. Not I about giving up it's not having those things and seeing them as kind of manly, you know, so uh, our, uh, I just, I just, I think it's important and I hope I'm catching that right, Alex. Yeah, no, in fact, I want to underline that because the notion that enlightenment, absolute happiness is the only happiness worth pursuing is it would be a mistake, right? Life is to be enjoyed and so attachments are a large, wonderful part of life and, and the joy of rapture is a very real joy the problem with it is that it's it's temporary and that there is more to be had. You know, if the state of enlightenment is possible, why wouldn't we all make that our, our ultimate goal as we continue to experience the other worlds? Because, you know, when you when you attain that perspective, when you see the world as sublime and you're experiencing the absolute happiness, the joy of enlightenment, that doesn't mean you're not also feeling sad. 
know, people can feel more than one emotion at one time. You, that does also mean you can suffer over the death of your loved one or your friend or the loss of a, of a you know, or, or care that you've created something of value for people or enjoy a, an earthly pleasure. Those things don't go away. They're just layered on top of this, this, this effusive um, self-transcendent joy that uh, in my mind really is the ultimate expression of, of human value and purpose and the, the goal to which we should all be striving in one way or the other. Because if you could imagine if enough people had, had learned to maintain the life condition of enlightenment within themselves, were truly joyful. There's a lot that goes along with that. There's, there's, there's wisdom that comes with that. There's, there's a, being an expert at, at conflict resolution. You know, there is, there's harmony with that. When you are freed from your small-minded ego in such a way that you really care about the happiness of other people exactly as much as you care about your own. Think about not just how each of us could be happy, but how our society could be transformed and others could be happy. And so, you know, it's this almost an Easter egg at the end of the book. But, you know, the point about attaining enlightenment is not just that you attain it for yourself. It's that in, in doing so, you help other people to find that perception, that, that, that world as well. I totally agree. This is, yeah, this is really, um, it's really like well thought out and wonderful because you've got the idea of the mind, you know, and, and if you look at Buddhism and Zen and personal development and things like that, like we can kind of underline like what the mind is doing in neuro-linguistic programming where you create the mental world in yourself. And once you kind of bring consciousness into it, you can start to level up a little bit. You kind of have like the way that I see this one part is coding you know, like what you're intending and, you know, thinking, critical thinking, different things like that. What do you want? What environment do you want to be in? What makes you actually happy? But then you're talking about this transcendent enlightenment experience. And that was something I was curious about as a kid. I was like, how do I become enlightened? Well, if that's possible, let's go there, right? Do I just float around on a cloud permanently and everything is great? Um, what, I've, what I've kind of come to is that you've kind of got like, it's, it's the yin yang type of deal where like, I'd love for you guys to kind of give your two cents on this. Um, but like with the Zen athlete book that I wrote, I did it with the intention for kids. And when I broke it down as fundamental as I could figure it out was um, if a kid is going to shoot, shoot a basketball shot, teach him to clear his mind, three deep breaths. So somebody who can clear their mind for a moment and somebody who's constantly in the internal dialogue, it's a shift in consciousness. The second part is to visualize that shot going in, um, helping them understand that they can influence their reality, that they do influence their life. The third part would be um, they missed a shot. So what's the most powerful and positive perspective that you can have? So, you know, you don't always know you know, like what's going to happen. You can't guarantee, but you do always have the choice for how you respond to a situation. Um, and I'm just wondering if you guys want to either like add on to that idea, but, and then also kind of go back to, you know, how do we get to that state? Or if you're in the hell, right, we're, we're so caught in the mind in this, in this world we've created and it's very real. How do we, how do we walk out of that? Can we, can we, do we have to go through the worlds gradually or if we can create awe in our lives in a certain right. way? Um, so I, I fed a lot there and, and, yeah. and kind of, that's a, a lot to unpack there, but uh, let me see if I can cover what, some of the stuff. So yeah, the notion of clearing your mind, uh, I think, you know, that's uh, crucially important for accomplishing goals. Um, you know, uh, we really wanted to, to uh, drain the religious connection out of that. You know, enlightenment has for so long been this mystical thing that only, you know, devotion, devoted practitioners of Zen or monks or whatever can attain. We really want to, to send the message, this is for everybody. Everyone can attain this state. You don't have to believe in anything. You don't have to be a religious believer. Uh, there is a path, uh, more than one path. Some are harder than others, but there's more than one path. 
Uh, I think that's the first thing. Um, uh, and you, you, you uh, lost my train of thought. There was the other thing you said. I think he's also talking, I'm, I'm not sure he used the word, but I think he also started talking a little bit about kind of mindfulness and kind of, and, and and, ah, yes, in the path to it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, you ask about sort of how does one go from hell to enlightenment? Do you have to go through all the 10 worlds? The answer is no, because these worlds are not, you know, we've listed them in order of least desirable to most desirable in terms of sort of how much happiness you're able to get, right? People are much less happy in hell than they are in the world of compassion, where they're actually helping other people to become happy quite clearly. Uh, but you don't have, you, you literally can flip from one to the other in an instant, right? The world of enlightenment is literally an instant away the world of hell. It purely depends upon, as you said, and as I said, mindfulness. And what seems to be the key um, is, is re relinquishing, letting go, surrendering your sense of self that we, by the time we're adults, we are so attached to, have such a hard time letting go of. There's evidence that people who ruminate about themselves, who think about themselves more, are more depressed because, uh, you know, it's strengthening the, the sense of self uh, is paradoxically uh, risky because it brings you more towards attachment and depression. Uh, but even the most depressed, most person suffering the most in, in the deepest bowels of hell to, in fact, sometimes that is the very vehicle by which you attain enlightenment. Uh, Eckhart Tolle, whose work I'm sure you know in The Power of Now, describes from moving from the moment of his greatest suffering to enlightenment because the suffering seems to work as a catalyst to help people sometimes surrender their sense of self. That seems to be what it is. And in my own life, since I've written this book and stumbled across this notion, I practice truly let, you know, letting go of my sense of self and, and letting it drop away. And it's very challenging because it's there for a reason. We evolve this sense of self for a really important reason. But with practice, you really can, uh, you don't reject it, but you surrender it. And, and that's, a, that's a vague way of describing this, but that seems to be the process by which um, you can begin to perceive the world around you sublime and feel that sense of awe when your own sense of self begins to melt away. So I'm not sure I answered all that you asked, but I hope I hit some of it. Yeah, it was really good. Ash, do you want to add on to any no, of that? I, I just, one, one thing I just want to make sure, because I know we're spending a lot of time talking about enlightenment and it's, uh, it's very alluring. I do want to, you know, but you also brought up a lot of really interesting, good work. And I just want to make sure, you know, I just don't want people to perceive it as necessarily this binary thing, which is, you're living in a delusional place or else you kind of captured the, the, you know, the ultimate truth. The reality is one of the reasons we wrote this is we recognize that, you know, for most people or a lot of people, relative happiness is, you know, the, the greatest thing within, you know, that they, they might experience or for whatever reason. And, you know, and for us, we actually believe that there's a quality to that also that we can, it can help people just become happier, whether they can glimpse or actually learn to sustain enlightenment or, or not. Uh, awakening to your own kind of beliefs about what happiness are and these delusions and being able to sort of to control and understand it just just like when I was in you know with it and I did uh, therapy uh, I did a lot of work I was kind of a I studied cognitive therapy I did a lot of work of helping people understand what beliefs are causing them to suffer and you know an awakening and then to that actually help them you know not be controlled by their beliefs but them actually gaining control over it so we, you know we think it's important uh, for people not just to um, think that there's something they're not able to achieve or trying to pursue that. But like with whatever world has you in their grip or when you enter it, we do believe that being sort of um, understanding why that you're in a grip of that will let people actually on a day-to-day -day basis have a better experience of happiness. And all the things you talked about, my, my, you know, the, this positive work that's been out there, Carol Dwork's work, all this work that's being written about this, all contribute to 
to, um, to this in a very positive way. It's not wrong, like we said, it just, we think it's just part of the puzzle. Um, but applying, applying a lot of those principles will still allow you to have, you know, greater experiences of joy in whichever world you, you spend your time in. So I think it's just really important to note that. Yeah, I think, well, the way that you guys are approaching this is, is just very practical. You know, you're, you're, you're using, you know, the research and, and human beings, and then you're able to kind of say, oh, okay, this group of people, you know, is experiencing this. And it's, it's always um, psychological. And then you look at the work of like Zen and enlightenment, and they're talking about, you know, getting out of the self, like you had to, how to transcend quote unquote, right? And so if there is this way of being in existence, and I think that like the way that Tom Campbell put it, improving the quality of your consciousness. And one of the ways that I kind of frame it when I'm talking to people or coaching, um, it's just like, you get a, you get a life, you're alive in a body, and it can be extraordinary and magical and remarkable define your life and realize that you are an extremely powerful creator. And so you can do that mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in the way that you want to grow. Um, and, and usually like if you are, um, really selfish, like I say, like enlightenment before, like when I try to simplify it is like, you have to take responsibility for everything or you're a victim. Um, and you can't be thinking about what I can get. It's like, what can I give and how can I contribute? And then you've also got like these principles of, um, you know, surrender, right? Do, doing the best intention, intend the shot, go in, intend to win something. But it's that, that whole journey in between and the quality of your presence and how you're um, experiencing life. And like, you know, what do you want to do here over a lifetime? So they're all very important concepts. And I, and I like the idea of what's possible through consciousness. I've experienced that uh, non-self quite a bit. It's intense. It's awesome. And it's, but it's like, but it's also like not candy. Like you're not supposed to stay there. You know, it's like the idea is like, Hey Matt, you know what you're supposed to do. Right. And, and so even for me and all the work and having the podcast and incredible people like yourself coming on, it's like a constant reminder, right? I'm like, I'll be like, I'll catch myself a bit quicker, but it might be like two days of like some sort of stupid mental depression or whatever, then I got to snap myself out of it. So, um, I would love to talk to you guys for another 10 hours, but I know that you guys are busy. Um, kicking butt. So I want to be mindful of your time. Feel free to go on as long as you wish, but I just want to let you know it's an hour if you guys got meetings or something. Um, but what would you guys recommend as a step? Because I think that the mind is powerful. And when you're in the world, it's like your simulation, you are in it. And so if you guys could give like any practical advice for someone like, well, Hey, you guys don't have to go pay the bills. You don't have a screaming kid. You don't have this stress. You don't have, you know, the mortgage, whatever the case is, right? Everybody's got a different story to stress out about. So if you guys could maybe share some uh, advice for moving into a higher world or experiencing yeah. this awe. So I'll answer that question and I'm going to have to drop off, I'm afraid. So uh, I, you know, I think one of the things, one of the points we want to make in the book is that, um, you know, we all cycle through all of these worlds, you know, and, and you cannot judge the, uh, the quality of a person's life or the quality of their, their, their happiness or inner life based on what's going on outside them, right? So we know people who on the, on the outside are, are, they seem to be struggling horribly yet still seem to be somehow serene and others who seem to have it made from every perspective. They have money, wealth, fame, uh, uh, you know, wonderful spouse, everything they want. And they're suffering horribly inside. And so everybody has their challenges and we're not suggesting, um, you know, the, the book is not about how one necessarily surmounts those challenges. It's about how you become mindful of what world you are in and how that world affects how you can surmount those challenges. If you're in the world of hell, you know, even if your life is going great, who cares? You're going to be suffering. And yet, if you're in the world of compassion, where your focus is on helping other people, 
that actually does a tremendous amount to help you manage your own difficulties. And so, you know, we're not for a minute saying don't, don't strive against the obstacles that are rising up in your life and try to better your life and try to handle the problems you have. But if you become mindful about the life condition in which you spend most of your time in uh, and why, what belief it is that lies at the core of that life condition that you believe and that is stirred up for you so commonly, and you actually, you know, work on maybe trying to understand happiness in a different way, you know, making your basic life tendency one of the higher worlds, all the things you struggle with will be transformed. It's, there, there's this principle in Buddhism called the oneness of life and its environment that when your inner life transforms, your outer life follows. And it's not necessarily literally like, you know, suddenly you, you become enlightened and your problems melt away, but how you look at those problems, your capacity to manage those problems is dramatically different, all based on your life condition. If there's one message I think I want to get across from this book is that it is your inner life state that determines everything. And if you can figure out, become mindful of that and figure out how to elevate that, all those things you talked about, the problems in your daily life, uh, you will naturally know how to solve them. Yeah. So. And I'm awesome. going to have to, I'm going to have to leave. So thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. I really enjoyed the conversation. You're welcome. I'll stay in touch. See you later. Have a All great right. day. Bye. Bye. Ash. Yeah. You want to keep okay, talking? I'll just, finish, I'll just finish up and I have to go as well. <laughs> okay. So, so honestly, you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm in the same place as Alex in terms of, you know, again, my, um, my motivation here was, you know, to be, help other people become happier and try to figure out why we're so bad at it. Um, and help people understand that. And I do believe that, you know, we, well, early on in the book, we use this analog, which is my favorite one, this metaphor that we use, which is like your life condition, which we now we describe as your world. There's like a glass of water and the external events are, just, are stirring it. And um, your beliefs are sediment at the bottom. And so um, if you stir it up and there's a lot of sediment in there that clouds in a negative way, it's gonna, your whole life condition will be clouded. If there's nothing in there, I mean, no matter how hard you stir, your life condition won't become clouded with these, you know, with these negative, with these beliefs. And so this, the point of being that the stirring is not the issue. The issue is the sediment and the belief because something is going to come along in your life no matter what and stir. Um, and so it's really about how much sediment you have in your life and understanding that and turning that sediment from something that clouds it to something that colors your life. And so and I, in my experience uh, in my life as a psychologist is that the more people can bring that into their awareness and understand and gain wisdom over their beliefs, the more they can actually have those beliefs function in positive ways. And so while I love the fact that we've created a book that creates a real aspiration and a real belief in something, a core truth uh, and a life condition of enlightenment, I want people to be able to, to have more enduring and lasting happiness in their daily lives, realizing that eventually their life condition will plunge and they will experience downs. But if I can increase that by 10%, 20%, it live bit more that they can gain that um, and they can get more and more control over it. I would consider myself like been very, a very lucky person to have kind of brought that kind of happiness, even if it's relative happiness that lasts longer uh, to people's lives. And I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here, Matt. I really think this is wonderful of you and the fact that you're uh, curious about this and allow us this dialogue, it just means a lot to us. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, you guys are definitely welcome back at any time. It's, you know, it's, it's a very important work. You know, a lot of people are suffering. We have, uh, you know, teenage suicide rate going through the roof. There's yeah. all kinds of crap um, going on. And, and like you said, it's just becoming aware. That's all those subconscious programs running in the background. Like yeah. the consciousness I read a long time ago. I don't know if this still holds up, but it's like it, it, it only can perceive five to seven bits of information and the unconscious is, you know, hundreds of thousands. Yeah. But also, 
you know, I just recently learned that it's the reticular activating system of basically your consciousness um, assessing threats. And so that's like a bit of a fear-based, stress-based existence. And so it does require some awareness of how your brain is functioning, right. how your body's functioning, what core beliefs you want. Because right. just like a software and a computer, you know, your body is the, the hardware. It's hard. Right. But you can change the software. But that's where the consciousness comes in. You need a little bit of space because if it's just running all the time, you don't have any space to say, okay, what coding, what beliefs do I want to change? What do I want to create? And then also those ideas and perspectives of saying, look, I'm going to create, I'm in a state of non-attachment, you know, like give my best effort, but I'm not attached to the outcome. Like I'm still for the athlete example. It's like when I coach somebody and they want to be the best in the world, Olympic gold medalist, you know, giving their best shot, but like, okay, coming second and still whole, complete, harmonious, full of self-love. Right. and enjoyment of that process and experience. Like, I'm number two in the world. That's amazing. You know what I mean? And yeah, you're going to be a bit disappointed, of course, but it's the idea of you've attached to this thing, you know, but attaching or, or, or connecting more with the experience, with the process, with right. what's real, with what's meaningful through your own decision, through your own consciousness to take that um, feedback in. So um, I love talking about this. And I think that what you guys have put together is very wonderful because, you know, the second you talked about my world, it's like, ah, yeah, they got me. There I am. And yeah. uh, it's, it's so true. And then by looking and reading that chapter, I'm going to be able to gain more awareness right. on maybe some unconscious ways that I operate that will give me a little bit more space and a little bit more freedom to make a different choice that will allow for more happiness, peace, ease, and flow uh, in my life. So I'm grateful for it. Well, my pleasure. I really appreciate you having us on. Yeah. So where can people get more, uh, find out more about you? Yeah. yeah. Well, they can buy the book on Amazon, but they can go visit the 10 worlds.com and learn a little bit more about the book and also take a quick self-assessment to see what world they're from. Yes. And just on that, you guys send it really late. I, I was able to browse it and it's really good. And I highly recommend people check that out. So thank you so much for coming on and, and creating the book and, and all of your work. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Okay, take care. Bye. All right, guys, I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I know that I did. I think that the information was really spot on, really powerful based on science. You know, these guys really know what they're talking about. They've been in the field for a long time. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you like the episode, please like take screenshots, share on Instagram, tag me, tag them, share on Facebook, share everywhere you can. It really helps get the word out there. Um, if you want to do the whole um, donate and keep the thing going, sure, I do accept donations. You can go to Patreon. Um, you can send me a Christmas donation. It does help. I work really, really hard on this. Um, and so it helps. Uh, and, I'm, and I want to work on some other stuff too. Really what I want to do is my own creation. I've got like three books I want to write, a bunch of videos I want to make, but the podcast is kind of taking on a life of its own. But I'm happy to do that because it's been a really privilege and an honor to talk to these people. And, uh, you know, the next stage will be a little bit of help and uh, more creation of my own stuff because there's so much I want to create. And it's such a privilege talking to these people. So I'm torn, but this is the stage I'm in now and I'm grateful for it. So thank you guys, everyone who supported. Thank you to all my patrons everyone who's left a review in itunes please do that if you haven't left a review in itunes the best thing that you can do is one act of kindness today and please take the kindness challenge three kind acts uh, every single day for a week uh, tag three friends just say hey take the kindness challenge let's together make kindness go viral if we can do that oh my goodness then i know that uh the podcast was successful in a way that i couldn't understand at the beginning but just imagine a thousand people doing three kind acts a day in their city just imagine a 
uh, a thousand people in one city doing three kind acts. Um, that would change the whole vibe of the city. We're talking about um, happiness. We're talking about uh, upgrading our consciousness, DNA. We're talking about uh, spirituality and, and leveling up and, and all this stuff. But it's going to be a process wherever you are. And wherever you are in that process, if you do three kind acts that day, you're walking the path of a spiritual master. That's how easy it is. That's that. It makes sense. It's the truth because even when I went to the Parliament of World Religions and I see all these religious leaders, you know, they were no more special or connected to God or spirit than, uh, you know, anybody that I meet on the street, anybody that I meet at the gas station, anybody that serves me food at a restaurant. Like, you know, it's, they're all humans and I didn't notice anything that was special at all. They Some of them memorized different books, but what does it even mean to be spiritual or, or connected to God? It's spiritual action through kindness and we're all in kind of this mystery and this illusion. So, um, yeah, so if you get what the podcast is about or even if you don't just do one one kind act today please if not take the kindness challenge tag me and it just say hey taking the kindness challenge tag three friends do it up and you will probably get a universal wink uh for those of you guys who uh want some coaching go mattbelair.com forward slash coaching sign up for the email list over at mattbelair.com check out the lucid dreaming forward slash lucid dream and get a free ebook and guided meditation and uh thank you so much to everybody who's supported me along the way i really love and i appreciate you so have an amazing day and before we close it out let's just come do one deep breath in come to total peace and coherence so wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing taking a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath now just let it out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day coming totally present totally peaceful totally at ease making the firm resolve to be as kind and compassionate to yourself this evening kind and compassionate to yourself always and kind and compassionate to those you meet so thanks so much for listening have an amazing day you're beautiful you're wonderful i'll see you in the next episode